Well, welcome to our first week of Pastor 411. Uh, I'm Pastor Mark. I'm Pastor Andrew. And over the next couple of weeks, uh, Pastor Andrew and I are going to have the opportunity to answer a number of your questions. Yeah, this is sort of a, an interactive sermon series we're doing for the month of June, and we just want to start off by thanking you for sending in your questions to us. We've received well over 40 questions from, from many, many people, uh, dealing with a variety of topics. They're dealing with things to do with uh, theology and passages from the Bible, uh, ethical questions, spiritual disciplines, questions about how do I interact with people and situations in the world around me. And we're really thankful that we have such a diversity of questions to choose from. I wish we could cover all of them. Unfortunately, we can't, but we are going to do our best to cover a lot of them in the weeks ahead. So tune in every Sunday for uh, our, our new episode of Pastor 411 throughout the month of June. And uh, we hope to cover your questions soon. Feel free to still send them in as well if you wish. And uh, we'll see if we can slide some additional ones in as we get into the weeks ahead. But let's start off with a question that I get asked a lot these days. And I'm actually going to ask you first, Andrew, this question. And the question is this. How are you doing? <laughs> Every time. Yeah, uh, so I'm doing good. Uh, during this time, it's different. Times are just different. There's no other way really to say it. And so, but I've adjusted and it's actually been kind of nice lately. Uh, Jacqueline and I have had lots of evenings together and uh, which is not something that's common in our house since Jacqueline works evenings and I'm a youth pastor. So evenings are kind of a hot commodity in our household, but being able to kind of share meals together has been really nice. Um, and we're also going to be planting our garden just outside uh, the church here in the community gardens today. And so we're looking forward to doing that, um, sharing that time together, but also the harvest that's going to come from that in the, in the fall. Um, yeah, so that's kind of the update for me. But for you, Mark, I guess, how are you doing? How am I doing? <laughs> well, uh, similar to you, Andrew, definitely a different time these last couple of months. And so it's been busy trying to figure out, uh, you know, running a church and, and effective ministry and everything that happens on Sunday morning in a different season we're in. So it's, it's uh, been a busy time. Looking forward to maybe taking a little bit of a couple of days off here in, uh, in a week or so. So we're anticipating that. But aside from work here, uh, Nadine and I have been working hard to finish renovating our basement. That's been a big project for us. And uh, part of the reason we're doing that is so that, uh, so that our son and his fiance can, can move in the basement because we are only eight weeks away from the arrival of our grand daughter. So we're pretty excited about that. That's awesome. coming up uh, in mid-August here. So that's kind of what's new with, with us, and thanks for sharing, yeah. Andrew, what's happening with you. Uh, but let's get to a, a different type of question here. What are the questions that was sent in to us for this Pastor 411 series? And here's a question, Andrew, that I have been asked a few times in my life, and it's one that I also have personally kind of wrestled with a little bit at different seasons. And I want to ask you this question, because I'm just guessing that in your own personal life, but also as a pastor to youth and young adults, you've probably come across this before. So here's the question. Is all secular music bad to listen to? How, how do you respond to that question, Andrew? Well, First off, this is a question that you're totally right. Uh, I've had to deal with in my own personal walk. Um, I grew up not as a Christian throughout high school. And so I've waffled back and forth on this because the beginning of my life didn't start with this dichotomy of Christian and non-Christian music. It was just music. And so uh, I've struggled. I've had the time where I purged CDs from my collection. Yes, I'm old enough to have used CDs. Um, 
and been there for the uh, beginning of an MP3 player. Um, but yeah, and so I've purged CDs, and some of those CDs were all over the place in styles of music as well. Like there was some rap, there was punk rock. Uh, those of you that might be familiar with Blink-182 or even a heavy metal band by the name of Slipknot was in my discography. And so, yeah, that's kind of the starting point uh, for me with, with music. And so when I accepted Christ during high school, uh, there was that purge of, well, I can't have that in my life anymore. That's definitely not something that Christians are supposed to be listening to. Um, yeah, and so from that, though, there is a structure kind of that I've found that is kind of easy to follow and to kind of be able to figure out whether or not secular music is bad to listen to. Okay. And so there's three things for that. Uh, and the first one is you kind of want to figure out what's the purpose of music in general. So does it need to be about worshiping God? Does it need to be worship music only? And so in the Bible, we do find that the main purpose for music is worship. And we have a whole book of Psalms, which are basically songs of worship. And so, but it is used for other things. Mm -hmm. There are three places um, in the Old Testament that I found where music is used for something different than just worshiping God. And that's 1 Samuel. David is there and he kind of consoles Saul's tormented spirit with music. So plays some music in the background. So kind of like music therapy. And then in Nehemiah, the Israelites are warned of danger that is coming through music and instruments. And then also in Judges 7, there's a story of Gideon there and where music is used to surprise the enemy. And so three very different ways to use music um, outside of worshiping God. So for this first point, it's easy to distinguish um, if it's Christian or non-Christian music, whatever it is, the purpose doesn't need to be for worship. It can be used for other things. And so the purpose there is not good or bad. So then the second thing that I do uh, is look at the style of music. This is often a big point of contention in Christian circles. I've already referenced my time with heavy metal music and my time with rap music. And I say my time is in past tense, but it's not. Yeah, it I seems, currently. It seems like when this question gets asked, the focus is kind of upon like, like rock music and hard rock music is the one that comes to the service the most often. Is, I'm guessing there's maybe a reason behind that. Yeah, yeah. And so the reason behind that is that the history of rock music kind of came out in a time when those that listened to it were often associated with some kind of lewd practices or something that is sinful in their lives. And so this was also during a time of when the fundamentalist movement was uprising in the States. And so during that time, what happened with a lot of these kind of borderline practices of rock music was there's this double removal from the issue. So if, let's say, it was alcohol and the overconsumption of that that was happening at these rock concerts, well, they associated rock with that, thus they didn't allow rock music into Christian circles or metal music into circles because they felt that this was just the doorway into this act. Like so, a gateway drug. Yeah, kind of like, yeah, like a gateway, <laughs> like a gateway drug. drug, exactly. <laughs> However, we've come to find out that this isn't really the problem there. Um, the problem is just self-control in general for those type of things. Mm -hmm. And so this double removal has been something that is, is not necessary in our lives anymore. And I can speak to that just simply from my own personal perspective is that when I became a Christian, I did purge those CDs, but without Christian metal music, so that style of music, I probably would have fallen back into the, the music that isn't probably too wholesome, right. like Slipknot, for example. Mm -hmm. And so 
that was really a big part of solidifying me as a Christian during my teen years was this ability to have these different styles that I still felt were cool and better than just singing a worship song. And so mm. rap artists out there that are Christians as well that rap. And so I've listened to that as well. And so there's all kinds of different avenues to, to enjoy music and they don't just have to be this worshipy style of music. Right. So I get the sense you're saying we need to, well, we're going to have our preferences for style, <laughs> but style in and of itself probably isn't sufficient to say we can't listen to something. Yeah. I'm guessing they're, they're, you're working towards a, a more significant point that we can use as a bit of a measurement though. 100%. Yeah, yeah right on. And so the style is not the issue here. It's not going to cause a music to be bad or good. Um, it's, that's a personal preference thing again. But the, the third point of this rubric uh, is content. So the lyrics matter. So what is the message in the song? So up to this point, we haven't found a biblical basis or a reason to disqualify anything so far for music, whether it was style or whether it was singing a worship song or not. Mm -hmm. And so, but the content can reveal the standard of elimination for us. And so some biblical examples, uh, some scripture verses that can kind of tie into why content really matters um, comes from actually the series that we just finished in Philippians. So convenient. Yeah. The book of Philippians chapter four, um, verse eight says this, whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about such things. Yeah. And so there, that's, that's lyrics. That's the message behind the music. And so is it true? Is it honorable? Is it just? Is it pure? Is it lovely? Is it commendable? Is it anything? Is it worthy of praise? Mm -hmm. Can you look at this song that you're listening to and say, yeah, this is, this is a good message. Now, it doesn't have to be about God. Mm -hmm. It can be just a good message. There is truth in the world that is outside of just a godly message focused exactly on him. All truth is God's truth in the end, mm -hmm. and it doesn't have to come from the mouth of a Christian worship artist. There's also places in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 15, that speaks about taking captive every thought and making it obedient to Christ. And so it's really tough to do that if somebody's dropping a bunch of cuss words throughout their music. You can't really take that captive and make it obedient to Christ. That's something we want to try to cast out of our mind. And that's again, speaks to Romans 12, a familiar passage to us where we're talking about the renewing of our mind in there as well. So these three passages outline why content is the way to decide whether something is good or bad to listen to. So lyrics matter most in music. The simple rule of thumb if you can get it to be something that is proclaiming truth, goodness, a godly attribute, a godly character, and you can find that in the music, a thumbs up, go ahead and listen to it. Mm -hmm. If not, it's a thumbs down, and you shouldn't be listening to it. Now, that's, this is something in my personal life I've waffled in, and there are times where we, we're human, and so we just don't 100% follow through on some convictions in our lives. That doesn't mean that we just throw the baby out with the bathwater, yeah. right? We, we continue to push on and strive to become closer and closer to Jesus in all that we do. And so if for some reason you listen to something and it, and it drops a cuss word, don't feel like you're a terrible person. It's not something you want to continue to engage in, but that doesn't, doesn't change your relationship with Jesus. Mm -hmm. You can confess these things, um, but it doesn't change you. And so we need to think 
about the content in our music. That is the, that's the key there. Secular music is okay to listen to as a Christian as long as the message doesn't contradict God's truth, but is in agreement with or it affirms it. Hmm. Yeah, so yeah. if it agrees or affirms God's truth, it doesn't contradict it, we're probably on a, a okay safe ground. Place. In a safe place. Yeah. Well, thanks for that. Yeah. So here's a question for Mark this week. Mm-hmm. Uh, in last week's sermon, you mentioned the prosperity gospel. Yeah. And I feel like you were hinting like there was going to be more coming this week. And <laughs> was so it, Was it that obvious? Well, maybe a little bit. It felt like you had another 10 minutes to speak, but we wanted oh. to keep you under an hour. So It yeah. ended up on the cutting room floor, but it was written. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> and so uh, the question for you then is, what is the prosperity gospel? So we can get a little bit more information about what it is, but yeah. also... Is it dangerous? Yeah. Thank, thanks for that question, uh, Andrew, and for those who actually sent it in last week, too, following last week's sermon. Uh, so what is the prosperity gospel? Well, I talked a bit about it last week, as Andrew mentioned, but let's, let's dive a little deeper into some of the understandings of this. In general, it refers to a certain type of teaching that's present in some Christians that, that we can summarize by the idea that, that God is good— and because God is good, he wills that his children should prosper in the areas of health, wealth, and happiness. Now you think to yourself, that sounds pretty good because that matches what my natural desires are. And, and I can already think of some scripture verses that affirm that. So those are great partners to put together. If my desires match scripture, we're good to go. Some of those passages, and you can look these up on your own afterwards, if you wish as well. Matthew 7, 11, it says, God loves his children and wants them to prosper. In, in Psalm 105, it talks about how God is good and desires to give good things to his children. James 1, 17, every good and perfect gift comes from where? It, it comes down from the Father. Philippians 4, 19, one verse that I mentioned last week, God will supply all your needs according to his riches. And then John 14, 14, a verse that many of us know, ask for anything in my name, Jesus says, and I will do it. See, these verses are true. God does want his children to prosper, but you see, the way the prosperity gospel understands these and the way that it applies them is where they go off the tracks. Because the general basis is that they, they have a belief in Jesus Christ and, and salvation through Christ, just like, just like many evangelical Christians will. But they take it to the point of saying that the cross of Jesus Christ uh, was successful in defeating all barriers and ailments in life. So it is possible for followers of Jesus to live long, prosperous lives, free from sickness, free from infirmity, and free from poverty. There's only one thing standing in the way of you having that life, they would say. And that is this, you and your positive confessions. Here's what that means. Positive confessions comes from this idea that words have creative power. What that means is whatever, whatever you say, whatever you think, whatever you believe, whatever you kind of put out into the universe there will determine what happens to you. And so prosperity preachers would say that you need to make good, strong confessions. You need to do good works of service. You need to demand favors from God. And if you do that in a positive way, and if you do it with unwavering faith, then God is required to answer your prayers, to answer your demands, and grant you whatever you desire. 
This is why this is also sometimes referred to as, as the word of faith movement. That if word have power and creative power, but also faith is an important aspect of it. You've also perhaps heard it referred to as the, the name it and claim it or the blab it and grab it kind of gospel or some other names that happen. In, in essence, the idea is that if you think negative thoughts, if you lack faith, that's why you're suffering. That's why you're not getting what you want. But on the other hand, if you think positive thoughts, if you have enough faith, you can have wealth, health, and happiness. Now, not only is this a heretical teaching, a heretical theology, it's also dangerous. And it can even be abusive. There's one gentleman I met a number of years back uh, who, was, who was quite ill. He had a, a life-threatening, debilitating illness in his life. Uh, but a wonderful, solid, devout man of God. And so he had a neighbor that he encountered and said, you know what, me and my friends will come to your house and, and we will pray for you. We will speak these words of truth over you and in faith you will be healed. And so they did. They came over. This took place. But he wasn't healed. And so he called them and, and he says, can I have you come back? And they said, we will only come back if you have more faith. They said, because we spoke these positive words over you of healing, you must not have enough faith or you have so much unconfessed sin in your life that you are not able to tap into these blessings. You see, that's spiritual abuse. To the point where when I eventually uh, met him and came into his life, he was, he was a little standoffish with me because I was a pastor and he thought all Christians and pastors had this sort of vent towards them. So let's consider for a second what prosperity gospel preachers mean when they talk about prospering. Kind of feels like prosperity gospel is more about just right now. Like yeah, totally. your present life, there's no future in that. It's all kind of focused on present experiences. No? It's very imminent. Yeah. It's very physical. It's very much in the here and now. And throughout scripture and throughout church history, we see that God's definition of prosperity is different. You see, instead of pursuing wealth, the Bible actually warns against it. And not because money and health and wealth is evil. That's not what it's saying. But what it's saying is that the pursuit of these things is a direction away from pursuing God. Uh, Paul talked about this when he wrote a letter to, first Tim, uh, to Timothy in, in 1 Timothy 6, 9. We read, People who long to be rich fall into temptations and are trapped by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. You see, God's will is for his children to prosper. And that may include wealth and health. But there's more definitions of prosperity. And there's more important definitions of prosperity in God's eyes. You see, it all goes back to understanding the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross of Christ did not exist to provide for physical prosperity. It existed to provide for heavenly spiritual prosperity. That's the good news. And, and we see throughout history that, that many believers, some of, you know, some of God's most faithful servants, the ones that followed him for the longest parts of their life, right up to the very death, they did not prosper the way prosperity gospel preachers talk. Think of uh, the Apostle Paul, for example. Think of all the disciples who lost their lives for the sake of Christ. Uh, think of those who you may have read about through church history who were imprisoned, who were tortured, who were killed because they took a faithful stand for Christ. See, the prosperity gospel would say that by the measurements that they use, the reason these people suffered and died is because they lacked faith. They didn't have a positive enough attitude. Really? Have you read Philippians lately? Actually, we did. The last two months. Paul's pretty happy. 
He's pretty positive. He's pretty content even in the midst of his situations. He talks about joy in the midst of these situations. Why? Because of his deepening relationship with Jesus Christ. Not because of the things that he's getting through the power of creative words. His deepening relationship with Jesus Christ. And because of that, he's able to do, endure, and find contentment in all circumstances. And he can't put a price on that. You see, we don't celebrate these great saints of, of church history and the apostles because of their material prosperity. We celebrate them because they prospered, but they prospered in things like generosity, love, fellowship with Jesus Christ, and, and fellowship with one another. So please don't hear me say here that we shouldn't be concerned and that we shouldn't pray for finances. Don't hear me say that we shouldn't pray for the physical well-being of ourselves and our loved ones. I'm not saying that. We need to pray for those things and be concerned about them and pay attention to them. That falls in the categories of good stewardship and, and being in fellowship with one another. God knows about these needs and he cares about them. He wants us to, to invite him into these situations and to bring them before him so that he can provide for us. But the main point is this. We need to remain humble and we need to remain content in God's will and in God's definition of prosperity. Because a prosperity gospel presents a false view of God. It presents this, presents this view that says God wants to bless you with health, wealth, and happiness, but he can't do so unless you have enough faith. Which if we understand what they're saying there, they're saying that God's not in control. You're in control. And that's not what we see in Scripture. That's not what we see. And that's not what we mean here at West Meadows when we say life is better with Jesus. Because recall the words of Jesus himself who said in Matthew 16, what good will it be for someone to gain the whole world but yet forfeit their soul? You see, Jesus did not come to give us health and wealth. He, he came to save us from our sins. That's the purpose to which we've dedicated our lives, to share that message with people, not this message of earthly, worldly, imminent prosperity. But the message that we can have eternal bliss with him and prosper in that. And until that day, with anticipation of that day, we will walk by faith, trusting in contentment of God's provision for us because we prosper in Jesus Christ. So hopefully that gives a better explanation of the prosperity gospel a bit. Um, and, and we'll kind of leave it there. If you have any further questions, feel free to email or call us too if you want to talk more about this. But uh, hopefully that answers some of the questions, a bit more about the tense of that belief, but also the dangerous aspect of it as well. Well. We have one final question. One more? One more. One more. One more question, and it's one that's at the forefront of all of our minds in this current mm -hmm. time. It also warrants a little bit more time for us to kind of dwell on it. And so in light of the recent events that have been dominating the media, um, a number of people have been asking this question about racial tensions and injustice yeah. in our world. Yeah. So our final topic today is about that. A tough one, yeah. but an important and timely one. Mm -hmm. I think it's important for us uh, as, as church leaders, but also as the church that lives uh, in the present world to to talk about these things. Yeah. 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 So our final topic is one that's been flooding media mm -hmm. on all platforms, whether it's social media, TV, um, written, even in uh, articles and in the paper. Um, it's just, it's all over the place. 
it's a topic that's existed for a very long time. It has never really left media coverage. But with the recent terrible, extremely traumatic spark that has reignited the, the powder keg of this issue, and that issue is the systemic racial injustice right. in our world. Yep. The spark that we're talking about is the death of George Floyd while he was being restrained by a local police officer. Now, George Floyd uh, was an American, uh, an African-American man living in Minneapolis, mm -hmm. but he was originally from Houston, Texas. Okay. Um, he's, a, he's a human, and so he had his faults, yes? Yeah. But this is something that you, that you may not know about George Floyd, that he was a man of great faith mm. and conviction in his life. Yeah. We don't hear a lot about that in the media right now, but there's definitely evidence of that, mm -hmm. strong evidence of that. Yeah. yeah, there was an article uh, published in Christianity Today mm -hmm. that referenced a few interactions he had with the Christian community from his hometown, mm -hmm. Houston. And so a pastor at Resurrection Church in Houston said this when asked about who George Floyd was. So George Floyd was a person of peace sent from the Lord that helped the gospel go forward in a place that I never lived in. So this was the pastor who was trying to break into a community that is pretty hard to get into without somebody in there to vouch for you. Right. And so George Floyd was instrumental in pushing that church into that neighborhood. And missions refer to that as a, as a person of peace, mm -hmm. a person who can open the door for the gospel to come into tough areas. Yeah. So he was a sort of a person of peace in a way into yeah. those areas, those hard neighborhoods. And since we've talked about uh, rap music and different styles of music, That's right. Uh, there was a Christian rap artist that actually attended that Resurrection Church as well. His name was Corey Paul Davis, and he recounted an interaction he had had with, with Floyd as well. And so he said, Floyd said, I love what you're doing. The neighborhood need it, the community need it, and if you're all about God's business, then that's my business. Cool. <laughs> yeah. Floyd also said, as speaking to this, this person of peace to vouch for you to get in, whatever y'all need, wherever y'all need to go, Tell him Floyd said, y'all good. I got y'all. Hmm. This points to a man that left a legacy for the gospel in his community in Houston. Mm -hmm. Also, we can recognize that this death is not the end for George Floyd either. With a faith like his, he's now with his heavenly father, fully restored in his created glory. Mm. Yeah. But his death was a spark to some protests. Yeah, and I'm sure we've all seen and, and read about what's going on. Uh, and one of the central messages, it, it's, it's phrased different ways, but one of the central messages we see in these protests is that it's time for justice. Now, we may not all fully understand what that means because it's, it's a, a context we may not fully all live in and, uh, and relate to. Uh, and, and there's different ways that people understand what, what justice means. Um, one way that they speak of it is that they want to ensure that the officers involved that were involved in, in the death of George Floyd are, are held accountable. But that's just sort of on the surface. You see, it also speaks towards the fact that there's more going on beneath the surface. What we're seeing right now speaks to the fact that there is a historical, generational, systemic injustice that's been taking place for a long time. And these people who are speaking out right now are, have been experiencing this injustice in their own lives. And this isn't new, but it is different. 
And the reason it's different is because for the first time ever, the entire world is standing up and saying, yes, this is valid. This is a valid injustice that needs to be acknowledged. It is a reality. And we see this across social media. We see this in a multi-ethnic response, in multinational responses. And, and even, there's even been reports that, that governments of China, Russia, and North Korea are saying this is wrong. And if those guys are saying it's wrong, then even there's a problem <laughs> if those guys say it's wrong. Yeah. So, so this may seem like it's an American problem, though, right? This isn't a Canadian again. thing. Yeah. We're, we're good. We're nice. We're friendly. We don't have these race issues in our country. But it maybe feels like we're sitting on the sidelines. We're kind of in the bleachers just watching this whole thing unfold mm -hmm. um, in the USA yeah. predominantly. Mm -hmm. But that's not the case. Injustice is still something that even us polite Canadians um, can experience. Yeah. And we do have a mosaic of nationalities in our country, and that's really something we pride ourselves on. Mm -hmm. But these injustices divided by race are in our own backyard. Yeah. Some examples of these, they may not be as, as volatile as they are in the States, but there's a lot of persecution on some in our neighborhoods even. Mm -hmm. The First Nations that we live amongst, those that are new immigrants to our country, it can often mm -hmm. um, be persecuted. And there's many, many others as well. Yeah, it's, it, it's being really demonstrated in the States, but, but in our own backyard, we got, we got some garbage in our own backyard as well. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 So how should we as followers of Jesus respond to injustice? Because that's the question, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, that's kind of the question we lead to is how should followers of Jesus respond to injustice in the world? Well, let me start by saying this, that the Bible actually has a lot to say on this topic. And, and we can know this for sure. We can know that God is in favor of justice and he is against injustice. That is something that we see in Scripture very clearly. For example, Leviticus 19.15 tells us, you should not do any injustice in courts. Do not show any partiality to the poor and do not defer to the great. That There needs to be the sense of equality. No injustice for any reason can exist. In Psalms 89, it says, righteousness and justice are the foundation of God's throne. And then in the book of Isaiah, we read that Isaiah lived in a time of great injustice. And in the very first chapter of that book, God's message was very simple. He said this, he said, learn to do right, seek justice, defend the oppressed, take up the cause of the fatherless, and plead the case for the widow. The fatherless and the widow are examples of those who were an oppressed and a, uh, a people in the community who experienced injustice. And this is not just a, an Old Testament thing either. Like, this, this carries through. This yeah. is something that we can find in the New Testament as well. The whole gospel of Luke, mm -hmm. often a gospel that's focused on a call to the people that are oppressed, a care for the yeah. widow, the orphan, the poor, the outcast, the stranger, and the immigrant. Yep. The alien in the land mm -hmm. is often a call. These are all examples of forms of bondage and oppression that are just still rampant in our world today. Yeah. Absolutely. So we see it throughout Scripture. We see it throughout Scripture. And an injustice is not a virtue that we see present in the kingdom of God. You see, we look forward to this day that we read about in Scriptures and we, we, we believe in wholeheartedly when there will no longer be any injustice in the world. 
Uh, the picture of heaven that we have is, is when Jesus rules and reigns over all dominions and, and all these types of things are done away with. Uh, again, the book of Isaiah foretells of this time when it would happen in Isaiah 9, 7. It says, he, speaking of Jesus, he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. This is the hope we have. It's the hope we look forward to. We know that day is coming in the future. But, you know, for people who are in this present moment experiencing injustice, these ideas of future justice can fall a little flat. It doesn't seem to meet the need of the moment for those who are living in injustice today. And maybe for yourself, you may not feel like you're living in the midst of it, but you're wrestling with, with how do I answer this question today? The question we're posing is how does a follower of Jesus Christ respond to injustice in the world? And so looking just to a future hope falls a little incomplete. Well, here's the good news. We read in the Gospels that Jesus Christ came to announce the arrival of the kingdom of God. Mark opens his gospel, Mark 1.15, by saying, quoting Jesus, who said, The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Now, when he says the kingdom of God has come near, he doesn't mean that it has been fully revealed, and we know that's the case, because what we're talking about today, this injustice still exists in the world, so clearly it is not fully revealed. But what he's saying is that the kingdom of God has come near to people, meaning that the gates of heaven have been opened, and all are invited to come in and to become citizens of the kingdom of God. And Jesus was announcing that God was doing something new through Jesus Christ, as Jesus was the way, the truth, and the life, the way to the Father, the way to become a citizen of the kingdom and a child of God. Now, the present reality for us who accept that is that we are those citizens of heaven. Again, the book of Philippians, uh, chapter 3, verse 20, we talked about this idea that we are citizens of heaven if we have a faith and trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. And we know that throughout Scripture, but also through personal experience, that that is yet to be fully known. It's not yet fully revealed, even though we are invited and it's come near to us. So we live in a a time Mm -hmm. that is often referred to as the now but not yet, where the kingdom of God is revealed, but not fully. Absolutely. The now but not yet. It's the kingdom of God has come near, but not fully revealed yet. Which begs the question, what do we do in the time in which we live? In the now but not yet. Well, Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, he, he, the second letter he wrote to them in, in chapter 5, he offers insights into what our role is to be as followers of Jesus Christ in the world today. And he says this in verse 17 through 20. If anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. And all of this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. So we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. What the, it's, it's a bit of a long passage there. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 20, if you want to look that up on your own afterwards again. But it's in essence saying that we are to be ministers of reconciliation. 
in the world in which we live today. Primarily, ministers of reconciliation as we help people reconcile themselves back to God through, through the good news of Jesus Christ, through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ that makes it possible for us to be in relationship with God so that they too can become new believers uh, and new creations, so that they too can become members in the family of God, citizens of the kingdom of God, and have that future hope. Uh, that's our primary ministry, is a ministry of reconciliation. But let me suggest to you that as the greatest commandment tells us, not only are we to love the Lord our God with our whole being, that's the first and greatest commandment Jesus said, but he also said the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. And when I read that, I think, you know, our ministry of reconciliation extends to reconciling ourselves to one another, to reconciling injustices between people and between people groups as well. He's as ambassadors on behalf of Jesus Christ. What, what, maybe I should explain what it means to be an ambassador first. An ambassador is a person who is a citizen of one land, but lives and serves in another. And when they live and serve in that other land, they, they represent, promote, demonstrate, support the values and the message of their homeland. So we are ambassadors on behalf of Jesus Christ. We are ambassadors of the kingdom of heaven in the world in which we live. And what are these values and messages of our homeland? Well, it's the very message and values of Jesus himself. We, we read about these and we see them in the Sermon on the Mount, as Andrew referenced the, the Gospel of Luke, where we see time and time again that, that Jesus reveals this kingdom narrative, these, these kingdom virtues as he wants to bring hope and peace and healing and justice to those who are oppressed. That's the message. That's the message we have as ambassadors of the kingdom of heaven in the world in which we live today. So like, as followers of Jesus Christ, we want to represent those values of the homeland, the kingdom of God. Absolutely. Right? And so Absolutely. equality, righteousness, justice is definitely part of the values of the kingdom of God. Completely. So we have those same values, mm -hmm. but in our experience, it feels like we're kind of standing like in a gap. Right. We're in that gap. But that gap is the gap between the now and the not yet. Exactly. That's, that's, that feeling is appropriate because we're in this moment of tension. The kingdom of God has come near, but has not yet been fully revealed. So what does it look like to stand in the gap? Well, let me suggest to you, first of all, what it does not look like. If we feel like we're in this gap, our response is not to step over the gap. What would that look like? That would be like saying something like, well, it's not my problem. Or I'm just going to ignore it and somebody else will deal with it. When we do that, we allow these injustices to continue. That's, if you ever hear some of these protesters say the phrase, silence is violence, that's what they're talking to is that if we remain silent, we allow it to continue. We allow the injustice to continue. We violate one of these kingdom values of justice. Another thing it's not, it's not doing things that will widen the gap. It's not finding ways to justify injustice or to support our own position that may not perfectly line up with, with some of these tensions that we see. Uh, one thing I see over and over again on TV and in, in articles I read is, well, they're just all criminals. They're just all rioters. They get what they deserve. That's not the whole story, folks. Yes, the rioters and the criminals need to be dealt with, and that is a separate issue. But there are many who are speaking peacefully, passionately, from 
experiences that cannot be ignored and written off just because a crowd or a small amount of criminals and rioters are giving a bad name to those who are genuinely trying to express a story and a narrative that, that is heartbreaking to us and should be heartbreaking uh, to the heart of God as well. So we need to be careful with this because in the human heart, whenever we start to experience partiality, whenever we start to experience judgment or a lack of love, that's actually an indication within ourselves that injustice exists. And I got to tell you, that's not how Jesus responded to these things. He didn't respond to widen the gaps. When he encountered those who were oppressed, when he encountered those who were sinful or were straying away, his response was not to just say they get what they deserve. No, he wept for them. He sought after them. And ultimately, he died for them. Because even those who reject the message of Jesus Christ, Jesus still died for them so that they had the choice to say yes. He still loved them. He still valued them because they are image bearers of God themselves. So we are not to step over the gap. We are not to do things that will widen the gap. But instead, I want to encourage you to stand in the gap as a herald of God's message of love for all people. As a herald of God's message that Jesus is the hope for all people. So when we see injustice, yeah. you're saying that we don't walk by. Don't just walk We're by. not to walk by. We don't add to the problem. Right. But we stand up. Stand up. Or better yet, kneel down. Mm. Yeah. And listen and seek to understand and defend the oppressed. Absolutely. Absolutely. And kneeling down, Part of that is praying. 100%. Healing of those divides through prayer, petition to God. Mm-hmm. And we honor God with that witness. Absolutely. Yeah. A lot of this battle will be fought on our knees as we pray and invite God into these things. So where do we begin? Well, I want to suggest to you the way that we begin, the place we begin, is to look into our own hearts, to our own thoughts, to our own actions or inactions, and, and even in some cases to our own histories. Uh, the psalmist in Psalm 139 writes about this, and he says uh, words that we can, we can apply in this moment. Search me, God. Know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me, and then lead me to the way everlasting. See, the psalmist here is saying that we all have blind spots. These areas that we, we aren't fully aware of that need to be chiseled off and, and, and refined in our heart and our spirit and our mind, our beliefs, our values. These blind spots, which could be prejudices or moments of inaction. Things that we were taught as children that just endure into our lives and attitudes today. That we need to be praying, God, are any of these things in need of being removed, redefined in my life? And and if and when God reveals something to you, the right thing to do is to confess it and to release it. But as we confess it and release it, we also then need to allow the truth of God to fill the void left behind by it. In just a moment here, we're going to participate in communion together. And I think communion is, is a great picture of, of this, is where we can confess and release something and have God's truth fill the void left behind. And we also see in, in the cross of Christ that what the world attempted, the world's great attempt at an injustice was actually transformed by the power of Christ to be the means to provide the greatest justice for us, for you, for me, for all of humanity. That's why Jesus is the hope of all people. 
And so uh, we've covered a, a lot of points and ground here. And, and before we go to communion, uh, let's just pause and pray. Let's allow God to search our hearts. And, and maybe he's going to kind of convict you of something. Maybe he's going to impassion you towards something. If you sense that, I, I encourage you to, to press into it, to confess it and release it, or to lay claim to it and, and see if we can be ambassadors of reconciliation in the world around us. Andrew, would you close in a word of prayer for us? Absolutely. Thank you. God, as we've covered all these issues today, Lord, but specifically this issue at the end of, of injustice, search our hearts. Help us to truly hold our beliefs and who we are with open hands, knowing that you shape us and mold us, and you are continuing to do that as we progress towards you, towards being more like Jesus and holding those kingdom values and speaking out for those who may not have a voice, a voice that hasn't been heard. And so God, we just thank you for today. Thank you for the ability to reach out to you in these times, to pray to you, and to know that you hear us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.